let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolaya. Hello and thanks for joining today. We'll have now for the first time talking about APIs and API economy and what is the relationship with identity. For that, I guess, is Mariuka Ninioya. She is co-author of API Economy 101 book and founding partner and leading consultant at Osango, a company specializing in API and platform economy. Osango has worked with several companies in Finland and abroad, as well as public organizations to help them not only learn about the possibilities of API and platform business models, but also define their API and platform strategies and guide them in the implementations. Mariuka is also the mother of the lean, business-oriented and open API Ops Cycles method, creator of the open course about API economy with the Tampere University and the local organizer of API Days Finland conference. Hi, Mariuka. Hi. Nice to be here. Welcome. It's very nice talking with you. So, Mariuka, let's talk about digital identity. And the very first thing I want to hear from you is what was your journey to this world of APIs and digital identity? It's an interesting question because it, it starts actually from about 20 years ago. I will never be older than 25, but still <laughs> 20 years ago, uh, Finland joined the European Union and, and we were basically pulled as students from the university to build the European Union agricultural benefit systems in Finland. And one of the key things there was, of course, identity. Uh, and we started very ambitiously because we were young and stupid. We didn't know that it was <laughs> very difficult to do. <laughs> so we started with building a web services-based architecture. And one of the key things for that was how to handle identities. And it was a really tough school because we had to handle the public sector people, like the people in municipalities who made the decisions about the benefits and also the farmers and everybody else who were somehow delivering or handling the agriculture goods and supplies and everything else and the animals. So we even had to find out ways to handle digital identity for animals. That was even okay. the, the kind of really? more interesting part. So yeah, after that, I've been doing identity management and handling identity management as part of a SaaS platform and a big retail company in Finland, Kesko, which also had at the time operations in Russia and in Sweden and in some other countries. And we had to even figure out how to handle the identities for multiple countries, multiple types of customers and also the staff and partners. That has continued. <laughs> sure. So where you were working for in this very first project you mentioned? There was a information center under the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry uh -huh. in Finland. And we were responsible for the IT services for all of the other government organizations and kind of area organizations within the forestry and agriculture and labor, actually, areas in the public sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting story. And a lot of what we are going to talk about today is about APIs. 
APIs, at least the first time I, I heard about that, for me, it meant something completely technical. And I know you you talk things about very different related to, to business, but just go to a starting point. How would you define an API? So what is an API? Yep. So <laughs> there are so many definitions, but API for me is, of course, coming from application programming interface, and that makes it sound very technical. And of course, the implementation of it is technical. But we use this books and publishers allegory in in the API Economy 101 book that I was writing. And there, the idea is that, which kind of makes it a business thing too, that if you have a book, you would think that book to be an API, an interface to that knowledge and stories and things in the book. So, for example, all the people and and locations and things in the book, then the API would expose those things in the book to be used anywhere, everywhere, in in Mm -hmm. other books, in, in marketing of the book. And, for example, the publishers of books are right now a lot of times using APIs, for example, they are using APIs for calculating the ISBN code. They are using APIs for handling the logistics or buying the logistics for delivering the books. They have APIs for proofreading, translating, a lot of other things. So to be able to be a book publisher, for example, you don't need to know all of that. You don't need to have an army of coders you just buy all these features, these capabilities as APIs. And that's how a lot of things that we are looking at, these kind of very successful platforms and cloud platforms, they work. So they are actually selling their capabilities as APIs. And API can access a lot of different resources, a lot of different capabilities that the company can offer. So it's not just a database or an algorithm or a system, but also, for example, we have customers in U.S. where they are doing transcriptions of videos and audio files, for example, via API. So they take the order in as API call, API request, and they have their own system there that allocates those requests, work requests to all those people, transcribers all over the world. And then they return their stuff on their platform. And then the end result, the transcribed file, for example, is uploaded, for example, directly to YouTube via YouTube's API or delivered as a file to the person who ordered it. So then, for example, if I am a provider, like like they are providing services for lynda.com or the American Heart Association or various other places. The company I'm talking about is rev.com, which is quite known for, for these transcribing services. So, so they are then able to combine the transcribing service within their own processes and within their own tools without having an army of transcribers. So this is the, the kind of business side that we talk about when we talk about API economy. So you can buy things, capabilities, data, algorithms via API. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's already the API economy. And when this concept of API economy started or started being spread or the concept itself of API economy, how it started? Because API came first. It started about, like, let's say, 2005-ish, mm-hmm. basically there were companies that said that, hey, we are going to make our 
platforms, we are going to make our products available via API. So there were Salesforce, Amazon, eBay, Flickr, and a lot of others who basically said that this is the way that we do. So we focus, for example, Salesforce said that we focus on the CRM and a few other things here, and we want to provide more services and a kind of more holistic approach to our end customers, but we don't want to do it all ourselves. So we offer these APIs to partners so that they can add on other capabilities to our platform. Stripe, which is a payment provider, was also starting this quite, well, actually quite late in a way in, in the API game, but not so long ago. And they were basically saying that, yes, let's do payments, like credit card payments. And PayPal was around them there already at that time. And PayPal was the de facto payment method in a lot of countries. But Stripe said that we will do this only with APIs. And actually, they got everybody else to do all the promotion around it. So it was something that you could buy just as an API with no UI involved, user interface involved. So this is where we start seeing it. And and personally, I saw the first signs and I, I got involved with API economy really in the kind of modern API way in 2009. We were basically a lot of customization requests and a lot of things that came from our customers and wishes that, hey, can you do this and this? And we had a lot of integrations that were file-based integrations that they were always needing a lot of work to be done. And then one day my developers came and hey, we heard about this API stuff, we could do this. And then we started making APIs and, and productizing them. And basically we got rid of, from a lot of tedious work and we got rid of all of the customization, a lot of the customizations and the customers could start building their own stuff. But as some people listening to this might say who have been around for a little bit longer, mm-hmm. it does go back. You can already start talking about API economy or like web services and service-oriented architecture as the kind of pre-stage of API economy. It wasn't completely sellable at that time in a mm-hmm. way that APIs okay. are now sellable and viable. But the same idea was there. So when, for example, in 2005, 2006, we started doing those web service-based architectures in the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry, we already had partners using those web services. And it was just that the monetization ways were not completely there yet. Even the service-oriented architecture and web services were, were, were quite new at that time. But the earliest signs of API economy, you can see already from there, even globally. Mm-hmm. Those examples you mentioned are, of course, quite outstanding. Some some organizations mm. that made it big about using APIs in that way. Some of these companies, basically their business model started like that, so they don't have anything before. And I have to say, mm-hmm. since this is a UPC Curve podcast, I have to say that one of the things that we did need and, and which started to happen in, in like after 2009-ish was the, the kind of coming up of these identity services and authentication services, mm-hmm. which had APIs. But back in the first wave, there were no proper standards, so they were XML-based standards. And, mm-hmm. and then there was like a really rapid development of also the kind of security-related and identity-related standards after that. And we are just seeing the 
real maturity of those standards at this point, I would say. Okay, okay, yeah, very, very interesting. And a term that is very, very connected to, to what we are talking about is digitalization, which the term itself, I don't know how old it is, you, maybe you know better, has been already popular for the, for the last decade, for the recent years. How things are today in 2020, you would say that a company's organizations are done, are still in process in getting digitalization? Yeah, I would say that answering the st state of things right now, as the COVID-19 has proven, there are companies that are very far in the digitalization <laughs> and then there are companies that absolutely have taken no steps or very few steps towards that. And that is what we are seeing right now. So, so in this sense, the answer is finally very clear. But also, I think that even the last one of those companies have started to see the benefits of digitalization. And digitalization, I think, this is a kind of the, the thing that everybody ends up saying at some point is that it's not just about digital. It's not just about the tools and the mm -hmm. technology. Because for example, we have been working with some companies now for, for like one or two years even. And to start with a proper digital strategy and actually get it done needs a lot of times, a lot of organizational changes. It needs culture. It, right. it needs a way to handle partnerships and it needs like a whole new way of thinking and understanding that, for example, things can be a little bit decentralized, things like all the capabilities, all the resources don't need to necessarily be bought and owned by the company itself. And it needs a lot of kind of networking skills and like not the technical networking skills, but, <laughs> but the business networking yes. skills. And these are maybe even the more difficult uh, to get done and sorted out so mm -hmm. that you then know what tech to introduce to support those new models. Okay, so some organizations still need to change their, their processes internally in order to be ready for digitalization. Yeah, I mean, like the humans are both the problem and the solution <laughs> in digitalization, I would say. Okay, wow. But hey, my background is in, I, I'm a master of education, so I get to say this. <laughs> okay, you have authority to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my biggest job is actually to kind of enforce unlearning of like old concepts and even the old fashioned ideas about what API economy is, because for a lot of people that is still totally a technical thing. So, Yeah, it is correct. Un unlearning. So that's one of the reasons actually I wanted to, to talk with you because you evangelize this API economy, business-oriented uh, API. And we've been there last, last year in API Days Finland and mm -hmm. always learning more about what uh, you and other companies that are doing things right. There's still a lot of work to be done to keep evangelizing other companies and organizations about this. Yeah, and I think that it has been funny. Like we have this joint course, Introduction to API Economy as a free course with Tampere University. And it has been really fun to see the comments from the students who are, mm -hmm. who are like, there are all kinds of ages and, and backgrounds and countries represented in the, the course. And everybody kind of, the first enlightenments come <laughs> in the first <laughs> chapters where like, hey, 
now I get why this is a business thing. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of people, you can see that if they have a technical background, they just think, and even business background, they just think that it's a completely kind of a technical thing. But mm-hmm. that is something that just needs to change. Yes. So what's your view of identity in digitalization in the API economy? Well, you have to handle it. I mean, if you don't handle the identity and if you mm-hmm. don't handle the identities of partners and customers and staff and the whole network, if you only concentrate on the kind of traditional identities to handle, mm-hmm. then you are in problems with the digitalization. I just have an example about that, yes, that quickly that we were just consulting on behalf of the business Finland, which is a government agency, but we basically had opportunity to consult a digital platform program where one of the bigger cities of Finland was starting to build or plan a digital platform for education that could be joined by all the municipalities of of Finland eventually. Mm -hmm. But one of the key things there was that they had to figure out Traditionally, the Department of Education had been handling only the identities of the students and the teachers. And now they had to involve also the the parents Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people (laughs) that were kind of involved in the education and and a lot of partners because they wanted to make it as open as possible for like education technology vendors. And you suddenly had in your hands a, a totally different set of identity issues. And even like how to handle, allocate, manage those identities. And what is kind of last thing that is typically a problem is that how to verify the identity, but the digital identity, mm-hmm. that who is really the person behind that identity, in which cases is that important to know, and in which cases it isn't important, and how to handle all of those different levels of identities and verified identities in the same system. That's, that's a typical issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so that's, for instance, a, an example of a project that is ongoing now. So there are, there yeah. are challenges like that today. Yeah, um, there are some other cases, like I could mention also this a Finnish case, but still a very relevant in European Union context and, and, and also outside the traffic sector. So mobility as a service is a thing, so MOS and, and, and this kind of transformation of the transport industry. And in Finland, the government came up with an idea that let's copy the open banking to traffic. It ended up as uh, local like Finnish legislation, national legislation, and that required all the traffic operators to handle a case where they all needed to open APIs to each other or anybody who is like somehow relevant to the industry. And they needed to allow these parties to actually sell their tickets. So, mm-hmm. so there's this kind of a traffic chain where you have, uh, if, if I want to go from Helsinki in the southern of Finland to northern parts of Finland, for example, and I want to book one ticket so that I could book that ticket, no matter what things I need to use to travel, like taxis, buses, trains, mm-hmm. flights, anything. Because all of those traffic operators have their own systems for loyalty and, and customer mm-hmm. management. And I might have already accounts in all of those systems. So then how to handle that identity exchange, that data exchange between those 
operators. And this is where we have this, I was involved in a project by the traffic regulators that we needed to make sense of the law in a technology and business way so that the traffic operators could actually handle this situation. And it was quite an interesting thing we ended up using like for, for those techies in there, but we ended up using OpenID Connect-based trust there, and it needed to be extended. And luckily, the open banking efforts had already forced banks and all the finance sector to come up with solutions, for example, to handle business and person identities, for example, social security numbers and business registry numbers and all that stuff within the OpenID Connect specification or OpenID specification. And we could actually rely on that. And that was actually why I asked you guys in UPSICR last last year to give the very good presentation in API Days. I don't think it's about that because that was at the time a huge issue and we needed that also for the traffic sector. Yeah, I mean, another very interesting example you are giving, uh, when you started describing, it sounded a bit like a nightmare <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it pretty much was a nightmare at first to even <laughs> grasp what the law required, why it was there, and how the heck should we handle this technically. So, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't easy, but we came through. <laughs> Excellent, well done. And yeah, but but then I saw that you start talking about OpenID Connect, and that's the yeah. an open standard, and that's one of the drivers of a good identity. I mean, you need open standards to like OpenID Connect to to make these things things happen. Yeah, I mean, like there was earlier, like some years ago already, the OpenID standard, and of course, OpenID is what all the Googles and a lot of other single sign-on solutions also rely on, but it wasn't really until OpenID Connect came about that it was usable in, for example, API-based solutions. And I could go on to the technical stuff on it, but I won't because the thing that you need to just understand is that, is that OpenID Connect solves the problem of, for example, you have a mobile device, you have a mobile app in that device, the mobile app is using APIs over the internet. And the question now is that who is actually handling the mobile device? Who is the person using that mm. app in there? And, and because the traffic between the app and the APIs and the back end of APIs can actually be quite easily seen mm-hmm. because device owner can actually access that traffic, even if it's secured and encrypted and everything. So OpenID Connect brings a lot of solutions to that kind of situations too. So it was like the thing that was completely missing before. And some people might know SAML. That was Mm -hmm. the uh, stuff that we used with web services, XML-based web services. And and of course, it's still there. It, It hasn't gone anywhere. But with these modern technologies where we have REST APIs with JSON formats and other stuff, the OpenID Connect is just so much more convenient. And also it's more secure than than just SAML. Yes, yes, exactly. And now that you start talking also about the, the importance of security, so what is the role of identity in API security? Well, it is hugely important because the first wave of APIs, these RESTful APIs, was actually 
using a lot of these API keys only. Mm. So you you wouldn't actually know who was using the API, like which user. You would only know which application would be using the API. And that brings about a lot of problems because sometimes you need to know <laughs> if the user of the API, the same API, is the customer, is it a partner, mm. is it somebody who has only access to their own data or all data or for example, a, a member of a business unit, but not the member of like who can actually see all data in that company. So because APIs shouldn't rely necessarily on roles. I mean, that's one way to handle access, of course, but mm-hmm. you still can't rely on a very simple identity management, a simple authentication, because the identity and the authentication method wouldn't go necessarily hand in hand, or it would be too easy to just, for example, give somebody else the API key or mm-hmm. pass it on and, and you wouldn't know who was really using it. So the identity in API security is very critical in many APIs, not in all. For example, we have open data related APIs that are very public in use and there it's completely fine to use typically an API key, which doesn't really tell who you are. It just maybe is connected to an email address or something, but you can still, for example, block that user of that API key from using the API instead of blocking everybody. So we had a case, for example, where the public radio station, there was some developer there that used one open data API from another organization. And there was like this programming error or something that it started spamming that API a lot. And Mm. the provider of the API, that organization was in trouble because (laughs) nobody could use it, but they didn't have proper API management at the time. Mm. And they just didn't know who to block because there was no API. There was no identity associated with the API use. So they didn't even know who to tell to stop meddling with it. They just had an IP address. And so they ended up blocking all the traffic from the public radio, which is not very convenient, (laughs) probably. So, I mean, there is that kind of security level, like who is accessing and what should they be able to do. But then there's also that kind of management, lifecycle management information and all of that stuff that is related to also the identity. So API keys can be still okay for some APIs that don't require too much uh, security? If the choice would be just to not have any authentication, if you don't Mm. really have any use of securing the API. I mean, like, if it's only, for example, for retrieval of data, not updating, Mm, creating, deleting anything, just for retrieval of data, and the data might as well be on a website, Mm -hmm. on a public website. So that's kind of the criteria. The thing about an API versus a website, it's not even so clear sometimes which is which, but is that with an API, if you don't have any traffic management there, if you can't just use the API as much as you want, you have no rate limits in place, for example, then of course you can crash things for the other users. So the recommendation would be, in even in the public cases, to put an API management layer there, put some rate limits there, give at least that API key associated to any email address which is like, Mm -hmm. of course, there's kind of an identity behind that email address, but we don't need to know who that person is, 
who that organization is. We just need to know that this is the way to reach. And this API key right. has been used, for example, to spam this API. And so we'll block that out. Those are the criteria that you can use it, that there's no update created or anything. And, and it would be as public as a public internet page. So otherwise, you should always have OpenID Connect. Yeah, yes. I think most of the cases, and actually we are talking in for, for organization companies that have real services. So it's the opposite. You have to use uh, OpenID Connect or to, to secure the API. Yeah, but there are just so many real companies out there that are still using only API keys. And that's kind of the issue there. And, and a lot of times those APIs have been born first into the internal use. But mm -hmm. then when you actually want to use them in mobile apps, you want to use them in IoT devices, anything that a user can get grasp of. And also if you want to share them with partners, then you are in trouble if you don't yeah. have proper API management and proper yes, security yes. and identity management there. All this experience, learn about this, and would you say that companies are taking API security seriously at this point? Well, there are a lot of companies that are taking it seriously. Then there are a lot of companies who think they are taking it seriously, but are relying on only for internal use, for example, or that they are so old, these APIs, that they are using technologies and ways of managing the APIs and authenticating and having identities that they are not relevant anymore. So they need an update. And then there are just companies that absolutely don't take it too seriously or rely on the developers who might be very junior or who might not have been given any time or resources to really handle the security or specifications, how seriously they should take the API security. And this is actually why a few years ago, I was working in Digia in a team where we had to do API management as a service to customers. And the problem that I found out when being on the customer side for some years was that there was no good way to handle API development and API management. So the developers who were developing the APIs didn't quite know what API management was and mm. oftentimes were not very security oriented for sure. APIs specifically. There was a process lacking there and checklist lacking that what you should you check. And that's where I ended up creating with the team the API cycles method mm -hmm. that is a, an open method and it relies on lean methods and kind of has a background in DevOps, but also is very business oriented. And there we have some checklists and some guidelines of what you should be checking for API security, also identity management. And it's completely free. It's in apiopscycles.com address and you can go there. And we have actually some training and some certifications for that too. And meet up so you are welcome to come to those too sure so, so that api of cycles method who is the main target audience to be like the leader of a yeah. development team sometimes it's the leader of the development team sometimes it's the enterprise architect even mm -hmm. who is in charge of like all the frameworks and methods mm -hmm. used for all the software development in company but then it can be also product manager and a business owner or business designer and even a single developer. So the idea here is that you can use and benefit from this method 
whatever your role is. Sometimes we even mm-hmm. have had service designers using the method because, Good. and UX designers, because they actually uh, are sometimes involved in, for example, making sure that the developer experience is really good and they might not know exactly what developers are doing or what APIs require. And so the idea with collaborative methods so that everyone involved could join in with a single language, a single set of tools, and it actually starts with like business model canvas type of stuff and mm-hmm. uh, value proposition canvas type of stuff, which are typically known to business people and uh, product managers, service designers, very well, and, and they are made to work in the API world. And then it goes down to kind of like one architect described the next canvas is as uh, coloring book pages, mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot of times architects, IT architects, software architects, all the people in the IT architecture side, they are using tools and using methods to describe architecture, which don't make sense to all of the other people involved in the development, not even the developers sometimes, but definitely not the business people <laughs> right. and the product managers. And within the planning stage, you kind of need everybody to give input and you need some mm-hmm. tools that everybody can work with and understand the business impact. Because for example, for security or identity management, the question is, what is the business impact of if these things fail, for example, Sometimes it's a really big one. Sometimes somebody actually can die if the mm. API, for example, is not properly secured. Yes. But a lot of times, or has wrong data or something, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's not that tra- <laughs> kind of dramatic. Yes. Well, excellent. Uh, I like also that you remind this, this, you have this, develop these tools and you remind us about that because in when you are building uh, new new products, new services or new features on the, on the products, it's, it's very important to, to take all this in consideration. Yeah, and, and also, even if you're thinking of security, but also to take the customer view on it. So mm-hmm. what is the impact, for example, for the developer or the end customer who is using the service? So a lot of times we tend to think about the service provider view. And we think that we need to have these features and, and sometimes we just list, for example, the security features or security stuff requirements there. But we don't really stop to consider what the end users mm. or the developers using the API, okay, for example, yeah. need actually and require or are afraid of. And then if we focus on that first, then we actually can take the lean approach and only give them what they actually need and can mm. use, but also give them more if it feels like they need more than what we originally thought that was needed. So this is kind of a very important thing also from a kind of cost benefit and focus point of view. Yes, definitely very, very good reflections. So we are heading towards the end of this uh, conversation. Could you now give us a tip for anybody to protect their digital identity? Well, of course, (laughs) the first rule is that don't take your password from your immediate family or something, but that's kind of an old thing. So digital identity can be protected in in, in a lot of ways, but a lot of times the digital identity is connected somehow to our email addresses. And email addresses Mm -hmm. are, to the most point of view, it's a unique thing. And, And if somebody gets access to your email address, then they probably can get access to a lot of your identities Mm -hmm. online. And 
So the idea is that you protect your email address, you protect a lot of your identities. That's the simplest rule. Of course, there are a lot of other things to consider too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Because that's a that's a gateway to the ident- mm. the identities we have in in several services. Correct. Thanks a lot, uh, Mariuka, for this very interesting insights about API, API economies, and also the security side of this digital identity. Please let us know how we can find you on the net. Uh, what are the best ways? So, of course, you can find me in LinkedIn. So, Mariuka Niinioja, and please contact me. But also in our website www.osango.com so osango with two a's in the middle because it comes from a Finnish word uh, we want everybody to learn Finnish secretly <laughs> but yeah there's a way to book a meeting with me or look at anything that I just mentioned the APEP cycles or the courses on our Osango Academy Fantastic thanks a lot Mariuka and all the best Thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About Digital Identity, produced by UbiSecure. Stay up to date with episode at ubisecure.com slash podcast or join us on Twitter at UbiSecure and use the hashtag LTADI. Until next time. <laughs>